Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, listeners, and welcome back to New Books and Intellectual History, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Hetty V. Williams, your host. Today on New Books and Intellectual History, we have Dr. Andre E. Johnson, who is an associate professor of rhetoric and media at the University of Memphis and author of No Future in This Country, the Prophetic Pessimism of Bishop Henry McNeil Turner, published by the University Press of Mississippi in 2020. Welcome to the show, Dr. Johnson. I am just so honored and privileged to be here. Thank you, uh, Professor Williams, for giving me an opportunity to talk about uh, Bishop Turner and some of the research that I'm doing right now. Sure, you are welcome. (laughs) No Future in This Country is a groundbreaking text on the leadership of Bishop Henry McNeil Turner within the larger context of the Black radical tradition. Johnson draws upon a vast amount of speeches and writings by Turner to demonstrate how Turner provided rhetorical leadership in the African-American community from 1896 to 1915. First, we will discuss Dr. Johnson's biography and some thoughts on intellectual history in general, and then we will engage in a more detailed discussion of no future in this country. Dr. Johnson, please tell us some more about your teaching and research interests. Oh, okay. Thank you. Um, Well, I am, as you mentioned earlier, associate professor of uh, Rhetoric and Media Studies at the University of Memphis in the Department of Communication and Film. I am also, and this is just something that happened like um, under a month ago now, maybe three weeks officially, uh, and I just want to share this. I am the scholar in residence of the Benjamin L. Hooks Institute for Social Change uh, at the University of Memphis as well. And with both of those positions, I teach in areas of African-American rhetoric and public address, rhetoric, race, and religion, um, Black studies, uh, and a whole host of other subjects, interracial communication, um, those old subjects like that. So uh, I am housed in the communication department, but I do consider myself a rhetorical historian. And we can talk a little bit about that a little bit later on. Sure. (laughs) Sure, absolutely. So, uh, let's start and talk a little bit about uh, your work and, of course, bring it into this conversation about intellectual history. Yeah. How did you come to study uh, Bishop Henry McNeil Turner? Oh. And tell us some more about the, the the Turner Project as well. Yes, yes. Thank you. for the, Because I love telling this story, right? Uh, I'm in grad school, and uh, we were about to start one of those, um, you know, seminar classes where... It was a pro called pro seminar where we were um, talking about rhetoric and rhetorical criticism. And I had already decided to do my dissertation. So I was in second year, maybe. So I already decided to do my dissertation on prophetic rhetoric. And uh, one of my um, advisors and um, person who eventually was on my committee, Dr. John Campbell, uh, suggested that I find a figure somebody to attach that prophetic rhetoric study to. I said, okay, well, uh, one of our cohort, uh, we're already doing Martin Luther King. And that was the first name that came up, like prophetic Martin Luther King. 
and I didn't want to do anything on King. So I'm thinking, who can I do this on? What what figure can I, um, you know, um, talk about uh, as a piece of prophetic rhetoric? And then I run across, I, I don't even, I wish I can remember the day and the time and how, but I'm just searching. And I just run across, maybe I was just, you know, doing some surfing on the internet, but I run across this speech, September the 3rd, 1868, by this name, man named um, Henry McNeil Turner. And he is going in on uh, these folk at the State House in Georgia in 1868. And I'm reading this speech uh, and and only pieces of it because it wasn't the whole text. And I'm like, wow, this this sounds like prophetic rhetoric. He is really speaking truth to power and um, he is trying to stand up for his rights and all of this. So, hey, I think I found my figure. Somebody historical, 19th century AME bishop. I learned uh, a little bit later because I had never heard of him uh, until I ran across this speech. So I began to say, okay, this is what I'm going to do. And then I'm like, oh, he's a preacher, 19th century. Preachers spoke a lot of times, especially black preachers, extemporaneously. Would I have enough text to study? Would I have enough text to analyze? I got this one fragment, but can I find the whole text? Can I find more text to really do a full dissertation on this person? An article, maybe, but not a full dissertation. So, uh, or I'm asking myself, would I have opportunity to do a full dissertation? So I began to start um, looking and researching Henry McNeil Turner, and I discovered that he wrote like weekly in the Christian Recorder newspaper. I'm like, what? Oh my God, all of this. And and I'm like, wow, oh, okay. (laughs) But then, okay. Oh, so maybe he's people have been writing about him or whatever the case may be. Uh, and then I discovered, wait a minute, nobody's really written about him. Um, 1917, um, there was a, a biography of Turner from a friend, uh, AME minister, M.M. Um, M. Ponton. 1938, there was an article on Bishop. Um, and then you had a couple of articles in the 60s. You had Red Key's volume. You had Mel Cummins' dissertation in 1972. And then you had Engel's work in 1992. And I say this because that was my lit review on Bishop Turner. <laughs> when I, had to do my dissertation. I remembered it um, uh, because it was just so short. Nobody's done all the work. So that's when I began to think that maybe there was not enough writing. So even when I was looking through the Christian recording, I was discovering this. I'm like, oh my God, this guy wrote, he, he would be a blogger today. He would, he would have weekly mm-hmm. posting and that's exactly what he did with the Christian record. I'm like, my God. So my, my new goal was, Hey, I have too many texts. <laughs> I need to decide mm-hmm. what I want to study. So I, you know, studied the prophetic oratory. So the dissertation, uh, when I finished back in 2008, is um, titled the, the Prophetic Oratory of Henry McNeil Turner. And I looked at four of his um, extant speeches that he gave or, or, or wrote because one, he did not physically give, but uh, somebody read it for him. So 
1866 speech, the Emancipation Speech, 1868, on the eligibility of colored members to have seats in the legislature, and then 93 is immigration um, convention speech or the national um, um, colored convention speech that he did, and then of course 1895, um, the uh, fatherland, uh, Africa and the fatherland speech. So, what I did was do did a rhetorical analysis on those speeches, and I tried to uh, show a rhetorical trajectory uh, from how does one get from, and this was very interesting, uh, Hetty, that how does get one get from being so optimistic, like let bygones be bygones? Right. In the end of his life, like hell is an improvement as far as Negroes is concerned. So that's mm-hmm. the trajectory, and that becomes the first book on the Forgotten Prophet, and as they say, the rest is history. <laughs> <laughs> so tell us more, since you discovered all these writings or, and or speeches yeah. of Turner's, how did you get involved in the Henry Neil Turner project? How well, did that come along? Um, shout out to Pierre uh, Foreman, um, who is now at Penn State. She was at the University of Delaware. Back in 2013, I had already been collecting. One of the things that I decided to do when I found all these writings as I was uh, a grad student and um, my first job out of uh, grad school, um, my first job was a re- I was a research fellow at Memphis Theological Seminary. And uh, one of the things that I wanted to do was to collect all of these writings. So every day, it would not be uncommon for people to come into the library and I'm at the microfish uh, machine cranking out 19th century newspapers, especially the Christian recorder. And, and you know, there's no search engine on those things. So you just had to look through every page. So I'm, here I am going and anything I found um, by Henry McNeil Turner, H.M. Turner, Henry M. Turner, I just, you know, copy it, download it, and saved it. And that began my collection of all of these writings. Um, but in 2013, I was uh, fortunate to go to the uh, Colored Convention Symposium, and I presented a talk on Turner um, because Turner was a prime mover in the Color Convention movement. By the way, shout out to the Color Convention movement book that is about to be dropped in March, I believe, of next year uh, at uh, on Duke University Press. So just want to shout that out. So Please, that's going to be a that's a great book, and uh, I am so honored to be a part. Uh, have a chapter in there, but back to the story. Uh, I uh, when I went to this um, symposium, she was already doing a digital humanities project. She and uh, several of her grad students and others on the colored conventions movement. So she begins to have a conversation with me uh, at lunch. I never forget it. It was just a lunch. And um, day one of or maybe day two of the um, symposium, and she just, you know, in a roundabout way, have you thought about, you know, digitizing and putting some of this stuff up that you have uh, on Turner? I'm like, no, not really. I was doing it, you know, the old traditional way, a volume here, a volume there. I found a publisher who would publish everything that I found on Turner, all of the writings. And I was doing it that way. Um and after some more conversation, I was convinced that, you know, this would be 
uh, probably a better fit for me because I really wanted to be able to reach out to the church community, especially to the uh, AME church uh, community. Uh, And so that's when I began the project. So when I showed up here at Memphis in the fall of 2015, I began to um, um, create this simple web-based, text-based, because many of my writings are not in Turner's. Sadly, we do not have a lot of Turner's original writings in his own hand. Um, Mm. So I have been, and when I do presentations on on archiving, I talk about creating an archive because there's no archive for Bishop Turner. Uh, at Howard, at, at the um, uh, library there, they have a couple of boxes of some clippings of Turner um, um, writings, but no full archive of any kind. So what I am in essence doing, Hedy, is uh, creating an archive um, um, and, and just putting the speeches and the writings uh, in one place where scholars and um, aficionados or Bishop Turner uh, or whomever wants to look at them can come and um, examine um, the writings of Bishop Turner. So that's what the Henry McNeil Turner Project is right now. And we are constantly working on it, adding more writings, and hopefully we will begin to start adding some other content like reflections or people's doing scholarship uh, on Turner, things of that nature as well. Right. It's very important work. And, um, you know, I came across uh, Turner when I was an undergrad and I, at the time was wondering, cause just looking at some of his work, I was like, who is this guy <laughs> to say what he's saying in the 19th century? Yeah. And that, you know, that was years ago, but <laughs> there was nothing, like you said, there was, you know, not much written about him and, you know, where do you go to access his writing? So this is, right. you know, very important work. I'm glad that you're uh, doing this work. Yeah. Now you mentioned that, that Turner was a, obviously a great orator you know, all of these speeches he gave and also a writer. So that turns us to this concept of the intellectual. Yeah. We tend to tie the concept of the intellectual to the written word, mm-hmm. but folks speak ideas into being all of the time. Mm-hmm. And so I wanted to, to, to ask you, how do you define the term intellectual? And secondly, how does it apply to uh, Turner? Mm-hmm. I mean, we also like to say, well, the intellectual is someone who went to you know, the university or gained a, you know, a graduate degree and mm-hmm. we tie it to the academy uh, mm-hmm. sometimes. But obviously, you know, look at James Baldwin, who was, you know, a towering uh, uh, intellectual. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. No, no, I'm glad so, you're asking. No, no, I am so glad that you're asking this question because I do put Turner within the African-American intellectual tradition. tradition. And, um, and even though he is an autodact, he was self-taught uh, about reading and writing. Um, by the time he was finished here on this earth, he could read fluently in Hebrew, Greek, and Latin, um, was um, known to probably have the largest library uh, of um, of any African-American during his lifetime, definitely in the city of Atlanta, 
um, there have been some stories about, you know, going over to Turner's house and it's, and it's a room full of books and, and, and stuff like that. Turner was a voracious reader. Um, as we, as I um, um, talked about a little bit earlier, he wrote extensively. And what I'm looking at when I'm talking about a public intellectual or, or, or this intellectual tradition, remember, I'm a rhetorician. I study um, discourse. I study language and words and how people make arguments and stuff. So anytime anyone is speaking publicly and, and speaking to the context and the tenor of the times, and, and speaking on it on the behalf of others as well as for herself or himself and producing new knowledge into the public arena, that person is a public intellectual because that person right. now is then those ideas, whether it was immigration for Turner, whether it was on the race question, whether it was um, church um, church uh, material or whatever Turner was taught, politics, Turner's career, if you just think about his lifespan, 1894 to 1915, he comes on the public scene at age 19 when he is licensed to preach. So publicly, excuse me, publicly, he's out in the uh, public arena um, preaching and talking and not necessarily writing as much because he was still in the South during this time and slavery is still going on during this time. But if you look at that and to his death, that is a 61 year public, um, um, he's been in the public for 61 years. And so Mm -hmm. Turner lived through antebellum, civil war, reconstruction, post reconstruction, uh, uh, into the turn of the, uh, the 20th century and those type of all of the kind of uh, issues and concerns that were germane to African-Americans at the time, Turner had a major voice. I'm not talking about just a voice, a major voice. The last 25 years of his life, he was the senior bishop uh, of the AME church. Oh, no, I'm sorry. He was 15 years, but the last 25 years of his life, he was a bishop of the AME church. So Turner is just not, you know, someone that we can just put to the side. And and I think one of the reasons why we have put him to the side is because we have not had his writings in one spot. So that's one of the things, one of the things on my agenda is to try to bring that to bear. But also there was some other stuff politically that was going on in 1915. You had the rise of W.E. Du Bois. Um, You know, Booker T. Washington died in 1915 as well, um, uh, a little bit later on. And so African-Americans started going into more of an integrationalist mode. But Turner is huge. 1880 to 1915, he was bishop. From 1895 to 1915, he was the senior bishop. And so his voice was paramount in the African-American community. And indeed, I would say all of America, because he still had audiences with presidents, with senators, with Congress folk. And then he was so well known. 25,000 people showed up at his funeral in Atlanta when his body was brought back. Uh, from Canada, because that's where he died, um, right. uh, a stroke. So 
25, I mean, 25,000 people. So Turner is a public intellectual, a public theologian, and it is the pro, uh, it is the domain, I should say, of rhetoric and rhetorical study, because now we can look at those um, writings, we can look at those speeches, and we can see what he was arguing. We can see because nobody speaks without a context. So what was going on? What gave rise to some of this rhetoric? And that's what I try to do um, with my work on Bishop Turner. Yeah, you know, you you discuss him as a public intellectual and uh, and also as an autodidact, and mm-hmm. it makes me think of uh, Stephen G. Hall's A Faithful Account yes. of the Race, African American Historical Great Writing. <laughs> Great, yeah, it's it, it, you know, made me think of his book and the importance of these autodidacts and these self-taught men and women. Mm-hmm. And the thing is that what's problematic about the the phrase intellectual as attached to the academy and the written word um, is problematic when you're looking at African-American men and women of the 19th century who are closed out of the academy. Yes. And who are closed out of so many, even Du Bois is closed out of uh, so many spaces, including the archive. Right. I mean, so I like your conversation about building the archive. Yes. Thank you. Yes. Yes. I I just think so. Very important. It's very, very important. And there are other figures um, that um, that are still uh, what I what I like to say uh, locked into the 19th century that we need to unearth and free up yes. so we can yes. get um, those readings out as well. Absolutely, I think. And in, in the term, it, the the term intellectual also, we think about public intellectual. We think mm-hmm. about you know, folks who do not have, they're different forms of intellectuals, right. uh, not just, you know, someone who is attached to the academy. No, no, and right. um, he's producing ideas and he's writing them the, down. Right. As well no, as one, of the, one of the, one of those, one of the um, regrets that Turner writes about is that, you know, when he was coming up, he could not get informal education. And South Carolina did not educate African-Americans. And by the time he got older, he's, you know, uh, preaching. He's in the AME church. He becomes the first African-American chaplain and stuff. But but the desire for him to know uh, how to read and and um, how to write, how to make arguments and to do these type of things that he did, um, just he was. He had a dogged determination to to do that, and um, and he had a voracious memory. They talk about his memory. You can tell Turner something once, and he can almost give it back to you verbatim. And so mm-hmm. uh, that helped him in remembering a lot of stuff and to be able to speak uh, not only from a prepared text but also extemporaneously uh, as well. And if you read some of those kind of writings where he really gets into um, debates with people. And I just love the 19th century debates. Don't you just love reading the 19th century debates in the, in the newspapers and stuff and how they used to go at each other. But, you know, later on, they, my good friend, we can go out for dinner or whatever we can hang out. But, but uh, so, you know, I, I laugh when people are like, you know, well, we shouldn't be going after each other like this on social media and stuff. I say, you haven't read some of the debates in the 19th century, bro. They went after each other. But that's Turner. And Turner, uh, um, 
really, really understood uh, the importance of uh, media, mass media, which the newspapers were in his day. He understood about the arguments and the embedded narratives that could be carried over. And as I mentioned in, um, I think in this book, as well as the first book, uh, I mentioned that, you know, many of us would credit, you know, Du Bois as like the, the parent, if you will, of like uh, identity or race, race identity or or, 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 or or studies or, you know, talking about race. But if you read some of early Turner stuff, 1880, 1890, he is one of the right. first ones talking about, you know, this degradation begets degradation uh, that if yeah. someone, you know. And I'm looking, I'm saying, wait a minute, I heard this before, but it was in the 20th century. It's the Clark study talking about these dolls and Malcolm X and Elijah Muhammad talking about, you know, why is everything evil named or denominated black and everything good and holy is white? Turner asking the same question in 1890. So, and, and putting that in, his whole God is a Negro concept. That was going on at the time. So, you know, anyway. I like what you do with, <laughs> um, you almost, um, I, I don't want to use the word discover him, but you situate him in all of these arguments among black leaders, you know, Du Bois, Booker T. Washington, you know, at the turn of the century, and he gets overlooked, and it's probably because he doesn't have that more traditional, um, he gets overlooked as an intellectual, right? But he gets overlooked because likely he doesn't have that more traditional pathway into, you know, the academy, right? He's self-taught, and um, but he's out there um, making these same arguments. And I, I think you're right. It's definitely before Du Bois is, right? He's engaging in these arguments. I mean, we think, you think about Garvey, but, you know, who uses the invective too, which we're going to get into, but Turner is already laying the groundwork for black theology and a lot of these other ideas. And I think you're right. We kind of answered this next question already where you said your work as someone who studies rhetoric, um, you look at the history of ideas and how arguments are made, the structure right, of ideas and how they get framed and laid out by uh, Turner. So I, I think it's absolutely intersects easily with uh, intellectual history. So let's turn to the book more um, specifically, No Future in This Country. Tell us some more about Henry McNeil Turner, his background, and how he fits into the black radical tradition. We've kind of gotten into that a little yeah, bit. Don't but tell our listeners some more. <laughs> do we have time, Sister Hetty? Do we have time? Yeah, we have to. We can uh, we we take my time. No. Turner was <laughs> born on February the 1st, 1834, in Newberry Courthouse, um, South Carolina. And, um, and like I said, uh, he grows up um, um, not as an enslaved person. Uh, I, and, and Turner were quick to tell folk that early on that I was born free. However, uh, one of his, um, I, and I called it strengths, um, that helped shape him early on was working in the fields alongside enslaved people. Uh, he was hired out um, to do work as a blacksmith and, and a whole lot of other 
kind of odd jobs, you know, growing up. Um, but, um, you know, through it all, um, he uh, and his mom move um, uh, after she remarries. And then it is like a couple of years later, he um, gets his call to preach. And he becomes a member of the uh, Methodist Episcopal Church or the ME Church South at the time. And um, from all indications, um, the historians that I've read that have studied just a little bit of that uh, period of Turner's life and the other uh, material that I read about it, Turner was very successful as an itinerary preacher in the ME Church, in the Methodist Episcopal Church. Uh, he always had to travel with, of course, a white person um, because he was still in the South and slavery was still going on. Uh, and when he discovered that he could never um, be ordained or he could never become, you know, more than an itinerant uh, licensed minister, uh, it began to frustrate him a little bit. And so when he learned about the AME church, um, he immediately, you know, took to that and um, to make a long story short, because there is a story in that as well. Um, he finds himself moving from the ME church to the AME church and then moving to the Washington, uh, Baltimore area where um, his career really begins to take off. And so um, just to rattle off some stuff, Turner is the first African-American chaplain. Um that was commissioned, 1863. He um, um, had the first United States Colored Troop Regiment there, and he was a chaplain. And if you really just want to get an idea about Black life in the um, Civil War and about religious life of Black soldiers and just war um, itself, read the letters that Turner is writing from the battlefield. Oh, my God. They are just like they're gold, I, they, and they were just sitting there, um, you know, um, n- n- just sitting, just like you know, hey, here we are, and you know, I discovered. I'm like, it's volume two of the literary archive of um, Henry McNeil Turner that I am, you know, publishing as well. Just the letters themselves are just so powerful. Um, funny stories. Horror story. He talks about the horrors of the Civil War and 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 death and destruction and so on and so forth. Um, as a um, so, I mean, that's that in and of itself is uh, uh, amazing. Um, also, after that, he becomes the first Postmaster General. After the Civil War, he comes down south, becomes Postmaster General. Um, that didn't last long because people were mad because an African-American became the Postmaster General of the state of Georgia. Um, again, he becomes one of the first um, state representatives in 1868. Um, and, 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 you know, that famous speech I mentioned earlier at the beginning of our discussion, um, he gives because when they get elected white members, white conservative members of the um, legislators said, wait a minute, black folk can't hold office. That's not what our constitution said. Now, never mind you that the constitution never really said who could hold off for white or black, but you know, it was just assumed that white people can only hold 
office at the time. And um, Turner gives this this refutation and rebuke um, that is probably, in my estimation, one of the best speeches given. Uh, and I'm serious when I say that one of the best speeches given um, on American soul. Um, it should be in the top 100. In rhetoric, we got these top 100 speeches that we always talking about. And I think Turner's, that speech fits. Um, Turner goes on to become the, um, uh, he becomes for his church, the um, publication manager, becomes bishop in 1880, begins to promote immigration uh, and making some real sharp arguments uh, when he's promoting immigration. We can talk about that a little bit later, but he's really making these type of arguments that we do not get full. We don't even begin to really look at until the mid 20th century. And now in the 21st century, many more people are building upon that research about race, identity, and and, uh, and about um, um, belief systems, embedded narratives, and all of that. Turner is really doing that work when he's trying to get people um, to uh, move to Africa, trying to get African-Americans, period, to move to Africa. Um, he becomes bishop, becomes senior bishop. Um, so, I mean, Turner got this Big career. I always tease uh, people to say that, you know, one year I am just going to submit when I go to conferences, uh, I'm just going to submit papers on Turner because I can probably find uh, uh, so, much. So, so much about Turner's life in any call you want to just lift. <laughs> I mean, you want to talk about media? <laughs> Turner started four different, and, and I mean, he started and edited four different newspapers. You want to talk about politics? He's in the state house. He is a big time Republican um, during this time. He wrote a pamphlet that um, that he had that rumored that had to be reprinted uh, over 20 different times because it was so popular to get African-Americans to support the Republican Party right after the Civil War and during the time of Reconstruction. If you want to talk about immigration or you want to talk about pan-Africanism, Turner, Ethiopianism, Turner, you want to talk about theology and religion? Oh my God, James Cone is one of the only ones who actually said that Turner was an inspiration for him in his development of Black theology. I can't find a place where Garvey mentions them. I can't find a place where X mentions them. I can't find a place where some of the uh, Black uh, arts movement um, folk mention him. Even uh, nationalist hip-hop, I can't find those spaces and places. So Turner is a forerunner, a harbinger yes. for all of that that, that, that sure is. now in the 20th yes. century. So, so when I talk about Turner, I just Pick a period, pick a time, and Turner is a major player in that discussion. I mean, you cannot, I mean, we have, I mean, I, I guess I should, um, I'm getting excited now. You know, I know you can't see me, but my hands are moving, I'm rocking in the chair, I feel I feel my preach coming on. But, but, uh, <laughs> but Turner is, um, is a major player in the 19th century and to talk about major moves in the 19th century without talking about Turner is, um, um, you know, you, you're missing so much. You're missing so much. Right. Yeah. 
I think you're absolutely right. He lays the foundation for the intellectual foundation for black nationalism, black theology. One, our question coming up is Afro pessimism, and um, and you know by the by the late nineteenth century, he so clearly he is has kind of bought into the American idea, you know during the Reconstruction era. Civil War and Reconstruction era. So at that point, he does have some faith in the American system, but he turns away from it, which is the focus of your book, No Future in This Country, and and becomes more pessimistic by the late 19th century. So I'm wondering if you can elaborate a little bit on this phrase, prophetic pessimism. Yeah, yeah, and I am going to turn. Oh, yeah, and I'm going to... do a little bit more unpacking. I could not um, um, do it justice in the book because I um, needed to get to the other chapters, of course, but it's in the introduction of the book. And basically what I'm saying is that prophetic pessimism is a position that a person who adopts a prophetic persona, and I want to be clear when I say this, I'm one of I'm one of the ones that do not name or claim somebody to be a prophet. The only people that can claim a prophet is the people that support and follow the prophet. I'm not interested in who was turning a prophet, even though I think he was. But I'm not making that argument or making that claim. What I am saying that he adopted a prophetic persona in order to um, say what he needed to say. So. And, and, and there is a way that a person in a speech or in a writing can adopt this persona and act as a prophet to say woe unto you or to say that, you know, America um, would not be right until they're right by you know, black folk or something like that. So basically, prophetic pessimism is a space and a place that a speaker or a writer holds where I don't believe anything is going to happen or going to change. Okay, I don't, you know, I don't have that hope. My hope is that other people begin to see it the way that I'm seeing it and then start to act accordingly. Because with Turner, one of the biggest frustrations in Turner's um, um, that you can read about in Turner's writing is this. And, and, and I termed it and I did not put this in the book. It would be in the next book. I termed it as toxic optimism. That that people had in the late 19th century that, you know, um, that, you know, white people would do right by us. We, we are showing them that we have our own buildings and our businesses and our churches and our schools, and we are doing this. So Turner, why aren't you happy? Look at what we have done, um, just a generation out of slavery. And to a certain degree, that's right. And Turner did celebrate some of that stuff, but um, he also will come back real quick and say, you know, uh, believing that white people will leave us alone, that's an impossibility. And, <laughs> and, and we need to know that because what happened in toxic optimism is that when the hammer comes down and when you're crushed, when lynching goes unabated, when schools are burned, when in 1892 here in Memphis, Tennessee, when Thomas Moss and his two friends uh, have their businesses burned to the ground and Ida B. Wells begins to understand what lynching is all about, 
By the way, Turner loved Ida B. Wells, and Ida B. Wells thought she didn't think too much of preachers, but she loved Turner too. We can talk about that a little bit later. But anyway, uh, uh, but 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 when lynching goes unabated, when when the problems are uh, when when sharecropping is just a, a, uh, another form of being enslaved, and so on and so forth, when that comes to a lot of people, people lose all hope and become nihilistic and not want to do anything and just throw up hands and just say, I quit. Turner never quit because part of his hope was grounded in his belief and his faith. That was, that was part of it. It was probably the most part of it. He will write, you know, if I, you know, if I did not believe that there is a God in the universe, uh, I will quit. I will just stop doing this. So that's part of the prophetic nature of it. But also, when you know that things are not like they should be, you then have another reorientation. Not only are you not surprised when stuff happens. Oh, I'm surprised. I don't know. You, you know, you're in 2020. I didn't know we still had to go through this. Well, where you been? No, not only you're not surprised. But you also prepare to do something. And and Turner's answer, everybody was saying, Turner, you don't have an answer. Turner said, yes, I do. Let's go to Africa. Let's produce our own self-agency. This is nobody forcing us to colonize like early on. You know, this is us saying we are going to withhold our support of this nation and we're going to move somewhere else. Now, to, you know, Turner, you know, whether he knew it or not at the time, um, you know, Africa had already been um, debited up by the European powers. So, I mean, you know, that was not going to probably bring him what he wanted. But what Turner was trying to do in a nonviolent way, mind you, this is nonviolent. This is saying, hey, and this is Turner's writing, right? He, so he's saying, hey, we can't fight because there's more of them than us and we'll be slaughtered. But we can't adopt Washington's position, and this is what he he named Washington. He said, we can't adopt that and be scullions and just, you know, be menials to white supremacy and white power because we are past that kind of grudgery on to our children, and that would just beget over and over again, and we would never do anything. There would be no manhood, his word, uh, no personhood in us at all. So if I can't fight and I can't submit, and then they won't let me integrate. I tried. You won't let me do that. I try to go to school. I try to hold my business. I try to save my money. I try to do all the things that you want me to do. I dress like you. I talk like you. I even downgrade some of the other African-Americans that's not living up to the standard. And you still lynch us. So I can't do any of that. What can I do? Turner said, we can remove ourselves. And just think, and when I when I talk about Turner, uh, when I talk in lectures and stuff, and and everybody, when I ask this question, everybody pauses because it never has been thought this way. But what if a million people would have left the South and gone to Africa in 1890, 1895? Right. How would America be now? How would Africa be? <laughs> and... Don't say, and then, well, it didn't work. He didn't get people to go to Africa. No, because it was a money thing. 
And this is what he runs up against. And this is what I talk about in chapter five. When he runs up against that, he just says, okay, I'm not, this is not going to happen. So uh, I've resigned to that fact, but I'm still going to work. I'm still going to chronicle the suffering of the people that I claim to represent. And that's what Turner does for the rest of his life. But you know what he does do? He puts the idea in the head of many Southerners. And how do we know that? Because Black folk did get out of the South. They just went as far right. as the money could take them. <laughs> right. You know, no, it's true. Right. They got Great Migration One, Great Migration Two. People left the South in droves. They just took, they, it, hey, we got a few dollars. If I'm in Mississippi, if I can get to Memphis and get to Beale Street, maybe that's a little bit better. Right. If I'm in Memphis, I can just make it to St. Louis. Hallelujah. If I'm in St. Louis, <laughs> maybe I could go to Chicago. Right. You know, Movement as an act of freedom. <laughs> no, I, I totally agree with you. The idea of movement as an act of freedom. Yes. And, and as you said, it's an economic piece here wherein you you leave, you go as far as your money can take you, even if it's to Canada, right? Get away, get out of here. And the idea then becomes, it's the intellectual foundation of, 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 of black nationalism that he it is the and, know, and, and it is it is also a notion of what we talk about in rhetoric of agency that you are taking control of the little life that you have now there are some scholars that believe that we don't have agency and and all some critical scholars and stuff and I get those type of arguments but within the material world in a real context, where you can say, um, hey, I am going to do this. Me and my family, we're going to do this. And, you know, uh, if we make it great, if we don't, then it is, is, it, at least we tried. It, something got to be better than this. Something has to be better than this. So um, Turner is putting that idea in the minds. And you know why we know this? Because we know what the Southern planters begin to start doing. They start having these work contracts. You can't leave. And so right, you exactly. owe me money at the end of the year. You got to work that off. You got to work that off. You gotta, and so they began to have this system, um, like I said, close to enslavement as possible, um, start putting folk on in prison and starting the uh, what we now know as the in, uh, prison industrial complex. I ran across an article where Turner is talking about um, having chaplains for uh, uh, for inmates. Why? Because many of them in Georgia were black, and he began to start saying that maybe we can go in there, we can talk. But Turner is not talking like spread the gospel. That might have been part of it, but Turner wanted to empower folk that were in prison about some of the stuff that he's been talking about outside of the prison walls. So. Um, right. um, what I try to make clear in the book, I, and, you know, at least in the last chapter, uh, is that um, these moves that Turner is making and, and talking about and, and doing um, fire up a, um, 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 the uh, African-Americans that were in the South and as if they really need to be, you know, any more fired up, but, but really began. So you start hearing stories 
um, since I've been doing Turner work since 2005, I, st- I always hear a story or two about um, somebody's grandfather or great-grandfather uh, loving Bishop Turner. Um, because when Bishop Turner came to town, they all tried to go see him because Turner was speaking their language. And he was saying the stuff that they wanted to say, but could not say. And that's what prophetic pessimism is. It is an idea that, you know, hey, um, I understand where I am. I understand things might not change, at least not in my lifetime. If it does, I'll celebrate it. If not, then I'm not hurt by it. But that's why I can get up each and every day. What I tell people all the time is this real quick, that Turner had a standing invitation. When he uh, started the AME Church in Africa, he had a standing invitation to go to Africa and live forever. He had a standing invitation to live just about anywhere he wanted to in America. But he remained in Atlanta, 30 years. He remained in the South. And one of the reasons why is, you know, why don't you go go to Africa? Because it's not about me and my family. It's about a movement. And it's not about just a few Negroes, as he would say. It's about the movement. And and part of the problem he articulated was that not only um, it's a money, it might be a money thing for the poor folk, but for you middle-class African-Americans that could, that's been traveling, we know, and, and, and people have done great work um, talking about how black folk uh, travel to Europe and travel to these different uh, places and doing wonderful things. You can go if you wanted to, but you don't have the belief system. You think that you cannot survive. And this is his argument. He's saying that you are so brainwashed by whiteness that you don't think that you can survive uh, around blackness. And that then begins a whole understanding of what agency looks like um, um, in the midst of whiteness. So you bring up this idea of agency and this connection of, you know, his pessimism is growing, Mm -hmm. obviously, by the late 19th century, 20th century with the rise of, uh, you know, increased incarceration and um, Jim Crow. Mm -hmm. So what so you're but you're at the same time saying the he believed in the idea of black self-help and agency. So I'm wondering do we see him? Is he an architect of Afro pessimism? Oh, as it's, I mean, mm-hmm. at the present, it's you know attached. A lot of it, those ideas are attached to the writings of Orlando Patterson and the idea of the social death, the person without identity or agency. Does his work connect? Is it part of that intellectual tradition? I think it. I, I, yes, that's a great question, and I think um, it can be, and and. But I do make um, in the book. I do make a difference, right? Um, because, intro, yeah. yeah, because um, my understanding of Afro pessimism, there is no agency. That's another one of the groups that, that says that look, we're we're doomed. We can't, you know, do you know, anything. and so Turner is a man of faith, and he still um, believed until his dying day in God. He just didn't believe that God was at the moment ready. And one of the things when I talk about his whole role in providence and stuff like that, that that thing, providence, God's providence, really, really just he struggled with that all his life. But 
just God was not ready for whatever reason to really liberate black folk. But so, but he still had a hope that that might happen, but it wasn't coming soon and he wasn't waiting on it and he wasn't going to be disappointed when, for instance, uh, in Atlanta, um, when white folk just literally burned um, the town down in the <laughs> in nineteen oh oh in nineteen oh six, he's like, okay, see, I told you. But anyway, but yes, yeah, so I make that deter- I make the um, difference. But I do see a connection as well too, and uh, the connection is that a belief that wards off what I call, again, toxic optimism. And I want to be clear when I say that because, so you shouldn't be optimistic? No, I think I'm optimistic in certain parts of my life, but I hope I'm not carrying toxic optimism that's going to get me to hope in something that I know is not meant for me um, to be, to have, to share, to do. Because if that happens... I am crushed, especially if I threw my all into it. And if I'm crushed to a point where I don't want to do anything else, it's like being burned in love. You know, you get hurt real badly and you say, I'm never going to love again. I'm, no, no, no. Well, <laughs> don't, you don't want to be like that. But, but this prophetic pessimism, that says that, you know, I can still work with others. I can still, and Turner did. He was um, uh, one of the architects. And I, and I was shocked to even find this out. The whole Niagara movement, one of the first meetings they had is in Atlanta. Guess who's at the table? Bishop Turner. Of course. Turner, right. <laughs> Turner. He's at, I mean, he's at he, the table. So, I mean, he's older he, now, but they invited him in. And and so, and, and um, he had, I think, if I'm not mistaken, I'm going off the top of my head here. He was um, uh, put in charge of a committee or he was the honorary chairman for that meeting or something like that. But but the point is that in a prophetic pessimism, we're partnering, we're going around, we're still doing this because, there. hey, if something happens that we need to celebrate, we celebrate. But it is not a belief that, you know... Um, Racism would be eradicated if everybody get educated about black folk. <laughs> yeah, so you're what you're doing is identifying two things: the origins of African American pessimism and or Afro Afro pessimism in the work of Turner, right? The origins, perhaps, but actually, then the later Afro pessimism of the mid '80s and Orlando Patterson and others. That is actually maybe that's neo. Afro pessimism. Wow. You know what? Right? A new Afro pessimist. I think that's what you're identifying oh, with Turner. Wait a minute. Hold up. Let me just let me let me let me bask in that glory for a moment. You just made me sound smarter than than I am. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> no, this is, this is important. But... Go ahead. Talk the most. <laughs> <laughs> no, I think you identify so many different intellectual streams in in Turner's work. Um, his anti-war right stance, the idea of the black Christ, black self-love and self-help and pessimism. And he's in, you know, all of those um, conversations or is at least laying the foundation 
for the development of those conversations among Black leaders of the 20th century. And it's, that's this, book. this book is key to anybody looking at the Black radical tradition, Black theology, down to the ideas of Afro-pessimism. Well, no, laying all jokes so aside. It's important I, work. No, I thank you for that. Uh, laying all jokes aside, that's exactly what, uh, one of the things that I wanted to try to highlight and, and connect. Um, and, and this was a new piece of writing for me. I'm doing not rhetorical criticism. Uh, I'm doing more of a rhetorical history and I'm trying to place um, Turner, like like you just mentioned, um, with these traditions. Uh, and, and I do that by uh, illuminating his voice. Turner is all over the book. You just, you know, Turner is just f- full of the voice of Turner. That's the rhetoric piece. In the history piece, I try to tell a narrative. I try to tell a story. Um, I imagine, uh, well, I hope that um, people who are reading the book can read and get to the end of the chapter and I lead you to the next chapter that you like, I need to put this down, but I need to see what's going to happen in the next chapter. He kind of gives me a, a little cliffhanger. And I did all this. So it was a newer, newer piece of writing for me. So I hope that one of the things is that the voice and the rhetoric are turning the discourse for the rhetoric, the rhetoric side, but also for the history side. And I hope I threaded that needle and, um, and that people can see what I was trying to do in telling this story and this narrative. Because, you know, um, the whole Plessy v. Ferguson decision, I mean, that's huge, right? That, that's like, you know, that shaped American uh, a way of life, uh, 1896 to 1954. And Turner is right there talking, even when Black folk were saying, Hey, calm down. It's not going to be as bad as we think. Turner's like, what are you talking about? This is this is going to be horrible for black folk. And it was. <laughs> it just goes to show it was. So Plessy, um, you mentioned about um, the um, God is a Negro, um, his war, now anti-war uh, position, which, you know, um, made me begin to start thinking about some of the anti-war position uh, that Black folks start taking in um, doing the um, Vietnam War. You know, I'm going to argument. Turner is laying that same foundation. So when I hear, when I was writing this, I'm hearing Muhammad Ali talking about why he's not going to go uh, to Vietnam. Um, I think one of the most interesting chapters, since we are in the midst, in the middle of the election, is chapter four. Uh, the election of 1900. And I titled it, uh, one of the um, titles that he gave his editorial, uh, McKinley, comma, God of Fool Negroes Reelected. You know, <laughs> so, so, so that is when Turner really just had it with the Republicans, you know, um, and um, he did the unthinkable supporting win, Jennings Bryant the Democrat in the 1900 presidential election. McKinley won, but um, of course in 1901, before he can really, right after his uh, inauguration, he gets assassinated and uh, Roosevelt takes over. But but Turner is, um, did not really want to stump for Brian, but people start coming after Turner and Turner gave as good as he got. So he, okay, let me get serious about this thing. So. 
what does it look like to have agency uh, in the electoral process and um, defending it, uh, and which he did. And, and so, you know, we can look at it now in the 21st century and just say, McKinley O'Brien looking bad, you know, for black folk in 1900. But um, it is the same type of positions that W.E.B. Du Bois took in 1956 when he declared he would not vote. Um, same type of position that other people, either uh, people in 2016, black folk, such as our, our good friend Eddie Glaude took um, by not voting or supporting Clinton in, uh, uh, in the 2016 election. I mean, these are these landmark, I mean, not landmark, but these uh, connections that you mentioned that Turner is laying the groundwork for. Immigration is the fifth chapter. And then the last chapter is his damning of America, um, where he uh, was about to be brought up on charges of treason. Uh, and his good friend, Booker T. Washington, who they used to just battle back and forth, interceded, had to intercede on the behalf of Turner um, for um, to President Roosevelt at the time, Teddy, and, and said, that, you know, and basically his argument was, hey, man, you know, um, let him go. He's all right. He's a, he's kind of old now and nobody really takes him serious. Don't just cause he called a flag a dirty, contemptible rag. Don't worry about it. And Turner responded, thank you. Thank you. But, um, you know, I never ran away from a fight. And if they, <laughs> I'm too old to run now anyway. And, <laughs> and whatever. And if they come from me, they just come from me. I'll be ready to give a defense. I mean, you know, this is Turner defiant to the end and just um, uh, because Turner is right, though. I mean, we can see that now. At the time, there was a debate, right? You know, do you say that? Black black press killed him, you know, when he came out uh, against the flag. The flag is a dirty and contemptible rag and hell is an improvement as far as Negroes is concerned. And when he said that, yeah, I mean, you know, it's like you don't you don't go against the country, Turner. You're a preacher, and you should not be saying those things. And Turner's like, you know, you know, uh, in today's parlance, he would say, "Show me the lie, show me the lie, and I shut up." Mm-hmm. And you know, well, it's, <laughs> right? Well, no, it, you know what it does is um, this particular incident brings to mind somebody like Malcolm X and Elijah Muhammad yeah. chastising him about his comments, but they are, they're also their use of the invective. Yeah. Right. <laughs> so yes, that, you know, maybe our last question might be, do you see the parallels between Turner and other black radicals? Oh my God. Um, <laughs> or militants. I think Turner They're was using the invective oh in a strategic way. I think, Turner, I think Turner was even better though. Oh God, my God. You're, I, I, I tease when I when I when I talk about this in my classes, I talk about, you know, playing the dozens. If if my God, Turner could play the dozens with the the best he called folk bootlickers, scullions, um, um, um contemptible asses. I mean, you, this is this is written in the newspapers. This is like everybody can see it, you know. And uh, because they came after Turner, though, they came after Turner, and Turner, like I said earlier, gave as good as he got. So, I mean, Turner is this person that um, 
um, use the invective, which is part of the prophetic tradition. Part of the prophetic tradition is the use of uh, invective that is meant to shock, to, uh, um, it's meant to um, uh, awaken. It is meant to um, do uh, damage rhetorically, if you will, um, to uh, a system of oppression or people participating in the system of oppression. The prophet isn't necessarily aiming the invective at a person individually, but if that person is participating in a system of oppression that is hurting the people that the prophet claims to represent, well, that person is going to get the ire of, you know, uh, the ire of the uh, of the prophet. You know, so that's why, you know, every time we talk about the uh, Supreme Court, you know, this, I mean, the 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 <laughs> the best one of the best lines. I mean, he called the Supreme Court an ab- uh, abominable conclave of Negro hating demons. Yes, one of the chapters <laughs> is the title. <laughs> I love that phrase. I mean, like, wait a minute, Turner, of Negro hating demons. Um, he said that, you know, he, he, it's hard to pray for the um, Supreme Court. I mean, because the, he looked at the court at this uh, empowering, this uh, enfranchising African Americans at every turn. Um, you know, can I just can I can I just um, give a quick Turner quote since we were talking about the invectives? Um, he is um, writing to B.K. Sampson, um, and B.K. Sampson had wrote uh, had written an article uh, a week prior, a week prior saying that um, African Americans um, should just after the Plessy. Um, decision um, should just, you know, no, I'm sorry, after the Supreme um, Court struck down the 1883 civil rights decision, um, you know, back in 1883, I mean, 1875, Congress uh, attempted to pass a civil rights bill. It did get passed, but then in 1883, civil rights uh, was stricken down by um, the Supreme Court. He said, now I ask, should we sit and be conservative? Hold our peace and submit to degradation? I hope, sir, you will not answer and say, yes, you cannot afford to do it. No, not a member, not as a member of the Negro race. If the decision is correct, the United States Constitution is a dirty rag, a cheat, a libel, and ought to be spit upon by every Negro in the land. More if the decision is correct and is accepted by the country, then prepare to return to Africa or get ready for extermination. And, you know, in a, in a letter to his eighth Episcopal district, he said that um, now before God of nations and civilized man, we hold that the action of the Supreme Court is nothing less than a public outrage and an invitation to murder all colored persons who possess the elements of true manhood, a decision far more abominable and more at variance with the true status of affairs than the Dred Scott decision and should be singled out before heaven and earth. 
And he goes on. He just talks about this um, um, over and over and over again and offer these invectives that, again, is meant to shock, is meant to um, bring attention to the issues and problems that um, the prophet is speaking about. And usually and more than likely, that is not going to be favorable amongst the majority of the people that's going to hear it or read it. But the prophet must speak anyway. Prophet is compelled to speak. So, Dr. Johnson, what, I mean, with this work, I know you've done a lot of work on on uh, Turner, uh, even, you know, before this book and your previous writings. So what, what, what's, um, what's next for you in terms of your scholarship? What are you working on now? Oh, let's see. What am I working on right now? Um, right now, um, outside of Turner, uh, I'm working on with a couple of um, scholar friends of mine, um, Dr. Kimberly Johnson and Dr. Wallace Baxter III. We are trying to put together a book of sermons um, that were preached by African-American preachers during this pandemic. And we are working on that. Matter of fact, I got a meeting uh, a little bit later on today uh, to talk about that project. Uh, and um, there is some talk about me doing a third Turner book, a uh, religious biography, perhaps, of Turner, where I can really go into more detail about um, how his faith moved him to do a lot of the things um, that we see and read and hear about him doing, and especially his relationship and, and belief in women. And that belief led to them um, being able to preach, to be ordained, to be leaders in the community. And he supported that wholeheartedly. Uh, and that's why uh, folk like um, um, Ida B. Wells and, um, and um, I was thinking of them, just name just slipped my mind right now. Ida B. Wells and Nanny Burroughs and others of, um, the uh, faith movements really, really supported um, Bishop Turner and the work that he done. Uh, Holly Quinn, that's who I was thinking about, Holly Quinn Brown, um, really supported um, um, Turner, and Turner really supported them. And for a 19th century African-American uh, preacher to publicly uh, support women in writing um, many times, with his Voice of Mission newspaper, when he was taking trips to Africa, he leave women in charge of the paper. And they were the editor. They decided what went into the paper and stuff like that. So um, that's one of the things I want to um, do. I'm beginning the research right now. And I know one of the chapters would be Turner and his the role of women. Um, because they played an important role in the life of Turner early on. And it's my argument is why he... You know, as he got older, he really believed that um, women not only had something to contribute, that they had something to contribute that we all need to hear and believe and trust and support. And Sarah Ann Hughes is ordained yeah. under Turner, right? She's yep. like the first. 1885. Um, she just, um, I tell the story briefly in the book that she just shows up. Um, she's at the meeting. Turner called for all of the ordinance to come on down. She got, she gets up, Turner um, lays hands on her just like any other person. <laughs> and and uh, it was so big that the New York Times um, 
at the time reported on it. The bishops at the next general conference kind of, you know, took it away. But, you know, it did go down as the first woman to be ordained in AME Church, Sarah Ann Hughes. Well, Dr. Johnson, we have taken up enough of your time this afternoon. But I want to thank you uh, for participating in this interview. Absolutely, sure. Uh, About your important book, No Future in This Country. Thank you. It has been indeed a pleasure and an honor to be with you. uh, And um, I enjoyed having this conversation. Thank you so much.